Has anyone ever um, memorised the Bible verse? John 3.16. John 3.16. So close. Has anyone else remembered another Bible verse? Yeah? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lay not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Fantastic. Anyone else memorise one? Jesus wept. What? Do you know where it is? No? no? Yeah, here we go. So Isaiah 26.3, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Brilliant. Do you notice something apart from Jesus wept? Peter, Peter mucked up my system. He, uh, he threw a spanner in the works. Do you notice that Bible verses are all things that um, we, and they're good things, good things that we hold on to that um, we kind of like, things that, that appeal to us. Well, sometimes. I know a few blokes who've memorised um, Proverbs 25, 24 and Proverbs 21, 19, but I won't, I won't uh, go into that. That's for another day. You can, look, you can look it up on your own. Does anyone memorise Acts 2, 45? No? No, it says, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. No, no one's memorised that? Yeah. Funny about that. I uh, actually had a bunch of guys that I knew at, when I was at uni who asked me to print on the back of, a back of their T-shirt. They were going on beach mission and they wanted, they wanted Proverbs 24, 13 written on there. Eat honey for it is good. Because they loved honey. They thought, fantastic, it's in the Bible. But there's this risk that we have. They're fantastic verses. They're all good verses. But there's a risk that, that sometimes when we, when we read the Bible or memorise things, we, we graze through it and then we find something that we like to eat and then we chew on that and eat on that and enjoy it. What, we're, what we can do, we're at risk of doing, is actually creating our own framework and our own mindset of what the gospel and what our theology is. And we can actually get quite twisted in that because we only eat the bits that we like. And we, there's some parts that we don't actually like, so we don't stay there. We won't memorise those ones, we won't study them, we won't. And, and the beauty of doing a series is that you actually have to work through methodically, systematically through a book, and it's a lot harder. It's, it's not impossible to still just eat the bits you like, but it's a lot harder to eat just the bits you like. And even as we come to, um, and this obviously the series is called Against the Flow, so there's already a little bit of tension. Peter is not pretending that there's, there's some tension in this space. This word that he's sharing with believers in Turkey is actually quite, quite challenging, quite confronting. And as we start chapter 3 of 1 Peter, we're doing a series, it actually, uh, it actually gets a little bit challenging a little bit provocative, and, and the battle that Sam talked about last week comes into play. Here we go. Let's start 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Woohoo! Message over. Brilliant. Now, some people might be cringing at the moment, and other people might be going, Yeah, I told her that. <laughs> completely out of context. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's not this morning's message. Because so often we look at little bits and pieces and we take the bit that we want out of it, the bits that we like. For starters, 
it says, in the same way. So he's clearly talking about something in reference to something else. Who was here last week? Dangerous to put your hand up because I'm going to ask you what Sam talked about. There were three scenarios. He, referred, he mainly referred to two, but there were three scenarios that, uh, that he talked about that chapter 2, 11 to 25 talks about. The first one was authorities, yeah, leaders. Talking about respecting and honouring leaders. The second one, I won't tease you any longer, the second one was about slaves and masters. And the third one was they were based on Christ and how he gave up his life. And so already we see it's actually not a standalone sentence. It's actually a sentence in reference to what he was already talking about. So we got some context. And the context is not actually nice. All the guys who want to own this one, he's actually referring to authorities that were abusive. Um, not, not abusive. They were, they were power mongers. And yeah, they were abusive in that case. Masters who had slaves and the persecution of Jesus. So, guys, if you want to hold on to this verse, watch out, because you're not in very, good like, in, in very good light when you want to hold on to this verse. So be very careful if you want to, if you want to uh, claim this one as, as a reference point. But there's something significant here. Let's look at the, the slightly bigger picture. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that, again, there's a reason he's written it, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your life, of your lives. So we start to see a little bit of context for this passage. In isolation, it's very easy to get distorted. But when we put it into context, it actually has quite a clear message. This quote is associated with Francis of Assisi, but they're not actually sure who, who it was. Um, but it says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. So that's actually probably a better context for what this passage is talking about. Now, it's talking about wives specifically. And the reason it's talking about wives specifically is because culturally, and it's not just culturally, but culturally, when the wife joined the family with the husband they would take on their religion. And so you've got a scenario where there's automatically a potential place of tension. If you've realised that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and your husband follows another God, there's a real challenge there. There's a, stre there's a stress there. Because culturally you're meant to just join your, your husband's religion and yet they know they can't. They know that's false. And I know that's a lie. So he's saying, still respect your husband. Still be in that place of, of honour to your husband. Don't, don't just dismiss him as a loser because he follows a different religion to you. Don't undermine that position. There's actually an amazing opportunity you have to share the gospel with them. Not through your words, but through your behaviour. The way they see your purity and your rever the reverence in your lives. It's a, it's a really significant passage on what it means to share the gospel. So often we want to talk to people. We want to just tell them like it is. You'd be amazed how many times people come up to me and say, we need to preach on this topic. And my response is, how are you going demonstrating that? And they're like, oh, 
it's, it's not working so well, which is why we need to preach on it. And you go, so often we want to tell people how it is. We want to tell them how to fix things. We want to tell them what the problem is or what the solution is. And yet this really clearly points to the fact that in this amazing relationship between a wife and a husband, the wives have this beautiful opportunity to be able to share the gospel with their husbands. Now, it's not explicitly just to non-believing husbands because it says, so if any of them. So all wives do it, but if any of them don't believe, then you can win them over through your attitude. It actually goes into more detail as we keep going. And this is where it starts getting a little tricky. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the fading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. There's another passage that's very similar to this. It's uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. So we've got a couple of scenarios where this idea is presented. Unfortunately, this has been used in a very dogmatic, legalistic way to say, this is what you should wear and this is what you shouldn't wear. This is what's godly. You know, jewellery is evil because it says it there. Load of rubbish. But we're going to get to that. And the other thing that's interesting here is it's not just for ladies because, uh, you know, with metrosexuals and what are they called, makeover shows, hipsters, guys have just as much of a challenge with this stuff these days as girls do. So, so guys, don't switch off here. This is, this is very relevant. Firstly, God doesn't hate nice clothes and jewellery. That's really important. In fact, when you look at the prodigal son, what does the first thing the dad does when the, when the son returns home? Puts a robe on him and a ring on his finger. So if God hates jewellery... Why would the, the, the father of the prodigal son do that? He's showing value and significance through those things. So just, to just all of a sudden say, get rid of them all because you know, they're ungodly is not what this is saying yet again. But like Sam shared last week, there is a battle. There is a very clear battle between the way the world does things and the way God does things. There is a battle and it's very, very prevalent. In the church and outside of the church, we all wrestle with this battle. We are trapped into thinking that people will think we're special, valuable, significant, beautiful if we look a particular way. We think there's value in that. And sadly, in some cases, there is. There's some people who do measure people that way. But that type of beauty is fleeting. It's short-term. It's not sustainable. You're not going to look as good as you look today every day of your life all the time. This looks cool in the 80s. People spent a lot of money doing this in the 80s. I'm not sure how many here would be wrapped if they walked out of the house looking like that this morning. Peter. That's only because it has hair. <laughs> or you want to embarrass your daughter. But outward beauty is fleeting. It's not long-lasting. But the, the hard thing is, uh, it actually feeds our insecurity and our uh, idea of worth and, and value. There's a whole bunch of stuff about outward beauty that, that actually feeds things that we're not sure about ourselves. And exactly, I love what you shared, Michelle. It's so true. So often, 
the way we measure ourselves is distorted. A and in fact, I, I did a little bit of research because big businesses make a lot of money out of this. Does anyone want to guess how much revenue L'Oreal made last year? Nine billion? More? Forty billion dollars last year alone. Yeah? In a cosmetic industry that is worth $400 billion a year, right? This is people preying on our insecurity. This is the battle I'm talking about. This is the space in which we, we have a real tension between what the world says is valuable and what God says is valuable. And there is very, very little overlap. You can kid yourself into thinking there is, but there is very little overlap. There is a real deception in this space. When we look at that passage, we, we end with, which is of great worth in God's sight. So you see, this inner beauty is unfading. I'm sorry, your outer beauty is going to fade. As amazing you might think, you know, buff you might think you look now, it's going to fade. It's of great worth in God's sight and it is a powerful testament to your husband if you're a wife. And that's just in this tiny little passage we see this, this tension where the external stuff is not evil, but it's not where beauty comes from. It's not the definition of beauty. It doesn't define beauty. And the thing is we can actually take this into other areas with finances, with possessions, with, with careers. There's a whole heap of things there where there's this battle going on about what, what is valuable, what is significant. Now, can I ask everyone who's been transformed by Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, how many people's outward appearance, their physical appearance, changed when they accepted Jesus? Physical appearance changed? A couple? How many people's inward appearance changed when they accepted Jesus? There's, there's already this, you, you can already see it just on the surface, that my life was transformed from the inside out. God did an amazing work inside me first. He restored my inner me. And yet, when we talk to, to, to non-Christians or others, we want to present a facade that's nice rather than the amazing thing that he actually did, which was inside. There's a number of reasons for that. Sometimes, because the inside's not always pretty. Sometimes the inside's still got some some renewing to, to be done, and, and the Holy Spirit does that. But there's this sense that we, we care so much about the outside compared to the inside. And I was thinking about this this week going, how much effort do we put on our outside appearance and our outside beauty versus our inside beauty? Thinking about grooming. Think about your, the, the time you spend grooming yourself. How do you go grooming your inner self. Because I'll give you an example. So this week, I'm not a big personal groomer if you haven't worked it out. But I, I still try to take care of myself. But when I think about it, this week, well, this month, we've been reading, and a bunch of us have been reading the Bible in the year, going through, through March. And it got to Monday, public holiday. Slept in. Uh, did a bunch of work that I needed to do. Got to the end of the day and went, oh... I didn't read my Bible this morning. Not legalistically, just because I'm committed to it, I want to do it. It's a bit of, it's, it's like um, moisturiser for my inner being, all right? 
this is good stuff just to keep me fresh. And I got to the end of the day and oh, didn't read. You know what? I haven't read the whole week. I've shaved. I've cleaned my teeth every night and every morning. I've done a bunch of stuff looking after my outer beauty, my outer being, but my inner being I've actually ignored. Um, not ignored, not given the attention it deserves. And it shows in a really simple, practical way. And again, please don't get legalistic about this. Don't start timing how long you spend in the shower and then making sure you read your Bible that amount of time. That's not what it's about. But what it is about is cultivating this inner beauty. If we care about our outer beauty and invest time in our outer beauty, how much more significant to God is our inner beauty? And we wonder why our inner beauty is sometimes something that we want to hide. Because we're not cultivating it, we're not, we're not grooming it, we're not, we're not bringing it to life. There's a whole heap of things in there that there's this battle. And I'm not saying it's easy. There is pressure every day. And I'm not a girl, I know a few girls, but I'm, I'm not a girl myself and I don't totally understand. I get I don't understand the pressure you guys are under. I know there is huge pressure that the world puts on you to look a particular way. What I am saying is... God actually values what's going on inside way more than he does on the outside. And, and you can take on that pressure and live with that pressure or you can start to say, I value God's opinion first. I want to get, I want to get the order around the right way. Doesn't mean you never have to wear jewellery. Doesn't mean you're not allowed to do your hair nice. Uh, doesn't mean any of that stuff. But it does mean that the priorities have to be around the right way. Because it's your heart, it's your inner being, it's your inner self that is unfading beauty. And it is beautiful. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And it's beauty that's growing. So do not be deceived about what this is saying. It's saying get your priorities right because the light that is within you is way brighter than anything you can ever put on your face or on your body on the outside. It has way more impact on the gospel, on relationships, on the value of people, on all the things that God cares about. It's way more significant than just jewellery or, or, or out to external things. But if we keep moving, for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. So holy, being set apart, so not anyone special, but they're special in that they've set themselves apart for God. So those who set themselves apart for God in the past put their hope in God that this is how they adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. And he uses Sarah as an example. Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, again, be very careful, this is not master. This is like uh, sir or mister. This is actually a fairly personal um, respect, not a... Oh, sort of respect. Does that make sense? But it's, it's, it's just a respect. It's a respect that she had for Abraham. Not Lord as in, you know, you're, a, you're completely above me. You are her daughters if you do what is right. And again, daughters is in, in the image, in the likeness of. So you're a daughters if you do what's right. And do not give way to fear. Do not give way to fear because that is where this battle lies. I'm afraid about what they'll think about me. I'm afraid about what people will think. I'll invest on the outside more than the inside because that's what people want. 
That's what. That's how they'll accept me. Do not give way to fear. Husbands. Ah, oh, you thought this was all about wives, didn't you? In the same way. Funny about that. What do you think it's referring to in the same way? Not the wives. Jesus Christ, who laid down his life, was persecuted, was mocked, was ridiculed, didn't say a word, didn't have an issue with it. He did have an issue with it. He, did, he didn't respond to the injustice. He actually was humble and his inner beauty was just mind-blowing. Be considerate. Now, this, there's a couple of words here that are a bit weak. In the Greek, they're not as weak as they are in the English. Considerate is actually understanding, according to knowledge. Be considerate as you live with your wives. Know them. Understand them. Put the time and effort in. Now, I'm the first one to put my hand up. Is sometimes I don't want to know. Because if I know, there's some things I've got to deal with. Yeah? So I prefer to be ignorant, right? It's wrong. It is not right. It's, you need to understand. It's your role to understand your wife. You need to understand your wife. And it might be hard, but you've got to do it. And treat them with respect. Again, a weaker word. It's actually honour. And even honour's not. It's precious. This respect is a sense of of value and significance. Treat them with... You're a bit uncomfortable now, aren't you? Yeah, you thought it was all good before. Treat them with respect. Treat them in a way that shows how precious and valuable and significant they are. This is your inner beauty coming out. It's the same. It's actually the same, just expressed a different way. Get that inner beauty out. As the weaker partner. Now again... Another one that's easily abused. Just take that out and, and put it. I know a few, uh, know a few wives that could flatten their husbands. But generally, wives, females aren't as strong. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just watching a few faces. <laughs> generally, uh, females tend to not be as strong as males. Right. So there's, there's a general weaker in that sense. Culturally, they weren't earning an income. Uh, so they, 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 they weren't so much, they didn't have as much social status. There was a number of reasons why they were weaker. This is not weaker partner as in less significant. And in fact, it's re-emphasised in the next line. And as heirs, some passages say co-heirs, with you in the gracious gift of life. So they are your equal in that God doesn't look at them any different. They're, they're an equal to you. They receive the same gracious gift of life that you do. God sees you both as amazing, valuable and precious. And so don't see them as a weaker partner, but value and show their significance. Even though in some ways they might be weaker, culturally we're probably not quite in the same place, but recognise that they are co-heirs with you in this gracious gift of life. And here's an interesting one at the end there. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. A well-known verse that people um, uh, have memorised. The prayers of A is powerful and effective. Do not kid yourselves. If you think everything's good with you and God, 
and you're not treating your wife well, there's something wrong with you and God. Yeah? I'm not saying he ignores you, but there is a blockage there. If you've got busted relationships with the commitment that you've made to God that you will build and you will protect and you will, you know, all the things you promised on that wedding day, if, if there's challenges there, guess what? It's going to be hard to know God. You can't pretend they're autonomous. You can't pretend that they're different. God actually values that commitment that you've made. And I just want to pause. I was meant to mention this before. There's a really dangerous twist in this. And I was reminded of it this week by a guy that I used to work with. He wants nothing to do with the church. And he has a really good reason. And the reason he wants nothing to do with the church is that when he was a young boy living in South Africa, his father was abusive to his mother. Physically, emotionally, in a bunch of ways, it was abusive. And his mum went to church, not, not religiously, not regularly, but was attached to a church. And one night, the father came home drunk, was abusive as he had been, and passed out. And the mum went, this is my opportunity, and, and took her son down to the, uh, the church he didn't, I don't fully understand it because normally churches aren't open late at night. But he knocked on the door. The, the priest that answered the door, uh, she explained the story to, and he said, I'm sorry, you're married. If I helped you, that would um, annihilate, you know, that's, that God wants you to be married. You've made that promise. Bad luck. Go back home. That is not what this passage is saying. God is disgusted at injustice. He hates it. So this is not saying wives in abusive relationships, bad luck, suck it up. That's not what this is saying. God hates it and he does not want that for anybody. Yeah? This, this is not what this is about. Um, it's so important to understand that, that, that God fights for the orphan, the widow, the, the alien in the foreign land, anyone that is in a circumstance where they are treated unfairly, he does not like. So don't pretend that abusive relationship is okay because this passage told you. That is not what it's saying. Yeah? It's really important. But guys, getting back to the passage, there's a really important part here about, again, what's happening inside, not the outside. You can bring in all the money in the world... You can go on as amazing holidays as much as you want. But if you are not considerate, understanding and, and have knowledge of what it means to live with your life, and if you don't respect and have that sense of preciousness for your wife, there is a problem. A holiday is not going to fix that. Some of this stuff's not easy to digest. And it actually, it actually messes with us. And I know... There's so many things that make it much more convenient to go back to the way the world says these things are. To say, I've tried, it was too hard. I've, there's, there's other, it's complicated, you don't understand. I actually want to start by giving you an opportunity to ask any questions. Um, because this is not necessarily, there's a battle going on here. There's a wrestle here. So if there's anything that I've shared that's confusing, that you're not sure about, that you don't know in a particular context, you don't have to share personal details, but 
Does anyone have a question that they're pondering at the moment about how does that apply here or what does that mean here or how does that work there? Yeah, perfect question. So the question is, I've got a non-Christian husband. What does that mean for me? What, what this is saying is that you can look amazing on the outside for your husband, but the way to win his heart for Christ is to actually the inner beauty that's in you, that I know is in you, right? Never doubt that. It's there. Keep grooming it. Keep working on it. Keep cultivating it. Keep reminding yourself that it is there. And let him see that. Let him see what Jesus has done in your life, not just the bells and whistles on the outside. Yeah? So that's a yeah, brilliant question. This is, this is stuff to wrestle with. This is not, it is a battle, right? It's not, not easy. But that inner beauty is what will win him over. He will see the change that Christ has made in your life. Yeah? Great question. Love it. Thank you. Any other questions? Good question. Great question. So, so I guess there's there's two aspects to that. Uh, one is they are specific in terms of in this context, Peter is actually giving instruction to wives and giving instruction to husbands. That doesn't mean that they are mutually exclusive. In this case, there's some things that the women need to know. In this case, there's things the guys need to know. Most likely because of their areas of weakness. So if it's more likely that the girls are going to get distracted by jewellery and, and nice hair, and it's more likely that guys are not going to want to know. They're going to bury their heads in the sand. So it's more likely that they're targeting the things that the women and the men struggle with than that they're actually exclusive to each other. Does that make sense? Um, so the, there is something significant, I think, as a male being the head of the household, the, the husband being the head of the household, that they know. There is a responsibility as being the head of the household to know. I think that's not exclusive. It doesn't mean the wife can't know and they have to be kept in the dark. But the, the husband has to know. If they don't know, they are actually, I believe, um, not fulfilling their duty as, as a husband to their full capacity. We're all in progress. I don't fully know. But that's, that's where I'm going in terms of that. So that, that I think is, is really significant. But in terms of respect and, and value, I think that's mutual both ways. Um, and in terms of being distracted without a beauty versus inner beauty, as I said, you know, there's so many hipsters around that, you know, you could easily get confused without a beauty and inner beauty. But, um, but does it make sense? So there is a risk that, and for guys, it might not be jewellery, but it could be that boat. Does that make sense? So you might reword the words a little bit, but there is a risk for guys to have an outward beauty. And guys often, uh, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a status, cultural status, um, uh, about other things than necessarily jewellery and nice hair. But it can be jewellery and nice hair. Does that answer it? Yeah, yeah cool. Any other questions? Yeah. You're saying that God hates injustice, yep. and we understand that. But what about when you're trying to have the conversation around the fact that one of the partners is abusing the other, 
how do you have the conversation to another Christian about the fact that their marriage is still important, but they can't stay in that space of an abusive relationship? And that's not what God's saying in this, that you just suck it up and go through hell at home. What is your response then? I think it would be more rare saying to another man, but if another woman came to another woman and said it, what does another woman say to her about her abusive example husband? Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess for me, God is always about restoring. So did everyone hear the question? Yep, good. Sorry. So for me, God is always about restoring. So in some cases, um, and it has to be on a case-by-case, but some cases restoring might be able to restore the marriage. That would be brilliant. God would love that. But there also needs to be restoring for that wife. She's been in a place where her, her identity has actually been destroyed. He's taken that from her and she needs restoring. And if he's not going to be part of that restoring, then she needs to be in a place that's safe to restore her. Does that make sense? So it, I don't think you can have a blanket, blanket rule on it, but I do believe that God is always about restoring. And so if, if restoring the marriage, um, if there's, there's hope in that place, that's fine. Um, if there's no hope in that place, then there's still... That, that I wouldn't leave the wife in that scenario. Um, so I'm, I'm happy if anyone has any... No, no one disagrees? Yep, Peter, uh, just a second. I'll give you the mic so people can hear. If, if I can just add to that, um, God asks us to be in a place where our relationship with him is the most important thing. He's never asked us to be in a place to be a doormat to someone else's abuse. And abuse is something that draws people away from God and away from themselves. And anything that separates us from God, we need to get away from that. So if there's any situation where... Um, you're being a doormat, things like it. It's not a healthy place to be for anybody. Thank you. It's good. Yep. Excellent. 